This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Persecution is a horrible thing. Suffering under the hands of wicked men who scorn and despise the cause of Christ, which a believer represents, is not pleasant. To be pressed in on every side so that our place in this world becomes so small we can barely function, certainly is not joyous, but grievous. This was happening to the Thessalonian believers. They were suffering persecutions and tribulations. The Apostle Paul writes this letter in order to encourage and strengthen them in their sufferings. We consider today 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-10. through 10. To you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Passage of Scripture is not always easy to study, but it expresses a reality of which every believer ought to be aware. That reality is summarized in the words of this verse out of Philippians 1. It is given unto you not only to believe on his name, but to suffer for his sake. You see, the wicked world hates Christ's church. Throughout history, that hatred has revealed itself at times in fierce persecution. We are told that this will happen just prior to Christ's return as well. There will be a great tribulation during which time the Antichrist will attempt to destroy the church. Yet, as we await such a time, you and I are greatly comforted by Scripture. Though such troubles are never desired, though they may be grievous, nevertheless they produce wonderful fruits in the life of the child of God. Affliction yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. The child of God grows exceedingly in his faith, abounds in his love, and with patience endures. This is the encouragement Paul gives the believers in Thessalonica. In the verses we consider in our broadcast today, the believer is encouraged to endure persecution. When Christ comes, we need not fear that it will be worth the suffering. In the day of the Lord's return, we will see the wicked punished with everlasting destruction. Christ will level his vengeance upon the enemies of his church, who showed such cruel hatred toward God's saints. But also in that day, Christ will be glorified in us, and we will receive rest unto our souls. This we consider today as we look for the second coming of Jesus Christ now in the new year to come. Christ comes and is soon to be revealed. 
Almost 2,000 years ago, God sent forth His Son to be born into our flesh. That coming of Jesus Christ into our flesh in His advent was His first coming. Some 33 years later, just before Christ's death, He made to His church this promise in John 14, verses 2 and 3. I am going to heaven to prepare a place for you there, but I will come again to receive you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. This promise of our Savior was confirmed by the angels in Acts 1 verse 11, who stood with the disciples as as they were gazing into heaven while Jesus ascended. They said, This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Ever since that time, the church of Jesus Christ has looked for the second coming of Jesus from heaven. It is that second coming of Jesus on the clouds of glory that Paul speaks of in the verses we consider. They speak of the events that will take place at the second coming of Jesus. There are a number of events set forth in this passage that surround that second coming of our Lord. In the first place, we are told in verse 7 that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. At the time of Christ's ascension, he bodily left this earth and took up his residence in heaven. And there he has continued ever since for the interest of the church. In heaven he has ruled over all the events of this earth, and there also prepares a place for his children. But that means, of course, that since Christ is in heaven, according to his human nature, he is not physically present with us. According to his humanity, Christ is in heaven, and for that reason he promises us that he will come again a second time from heaven in order to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and that will take place at the end of time. Christ will return from heaven for us. That in the first place. In the second place, we learn that Christ will appear bodily. Upon Christ's return, He shall be revealed from heaven. And that term revealed here in verse 7 speaks of Christ's appearance. Christ will appear bodily for all to see. This in itself will be miraculous, of course. I mean, how will everyone on the earth be able to see him? But it will indeed take place. He shall appear for all to see. Yet there is more involved in this term, revealed, too. It refers to making known that which was at one time hidden. You see, for 2,000 years now Christ has dwelt in heaven. Man has not seen him. The church has preached about his coming and warned men about his imminent return, but, but Christ has not appeared as of yet. Christ's return is yet hidden, so to speak. Because of this, the wicked scoff at the church and mock the church. They have not seen Christ return as the church proclaims he will. Men, even within the church itself, debate about that appearance of Christ and what will happen at his return. But as of yet, there is so much that is hidden. When Christ returns, it will be the revelation of that yet remains, that which yet remains such a mystery to us. When Christ returns, we will see him face to face in our flesh. We will see our Lord of glory. He will be there for us 
and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord from heaven, who has returned as he has promised. In the third place, we learn when Christ returns, he will be accompanied by the angels. God's angels are those heavenly beings created by God to be ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for us, who are the heirs of salvation. They will be there when Christ returns. Their function will be to gather God's elect people scattered throughout the earth unto their place in heavenly glory. But what stands on the foreground now in this passage we consider, in the fourth place, is the glory of it all. Christ returns as Lord, and Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. Christ will appear as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be arrayed in splendor and girded round with might. That is what glory is all about, after all. It is the magnificence, excellency, the, 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 the dignity that exudes from Christ's being, which brings honor and praise to him. Everyone will look upon that returned Christ as he descends in the sky, and they will bow the knee to him. They will confess that he has issued forth the decrees that bring all the things of this present world to its end. Even the wicked will be forced to confess that Christ is Lord, and this glory of Christ will be manifested in his great power and might revealed in that day. Verse 9 speaks of the power of Christ's glory. Christ will in his might bring about all that takes place in that day of his second coming. No one will be able to resist him. All his enemies, including Satan himself, will be exposed as the puny, weak, powerless creatures that they really are. They might, in comparison to you and me, be powerful forces we cannot resist, but not so with Christ. He is Lord. There is no creature, great or small, that will be able to stand in his way in that great and dreadful day of the Lord. That might of Christ is his by virtue of who he is. He is an inherent power. Power belongs to Christ, and it does so first of all because he is the Son of God. All that takes place at his coming is brought about by Christ himself as God. There is another reason this power is Christ's. He earned that power by means of his death and resurrection. By means of his death, Christ has overcome the power of sin and Satan. He has crushed them under his feet. And by his resurrection, Christ has destroyed the power of death in the grave. It's for that reason God has given Christ a place at his right hand. The right hand of God, Christ has all power to issue forth God's decrees that bring about the end of time. This might and power of Christ will be revealed in two ways at the time of his second coming. First of all, it will be revealed in the angels. Verse 7 speaks of mighty angels. The might of the angels is not their own might, it is Christ's. But when he sends forth those angels, they will perform his command, and they will, in performing that command, show forth the inherent power of Christ. 
Everyone will see in those angels the power of Jesus Christ himself. Christ's power will reveal itself, and it will do so in a second way too. Although the phrase in flaming fire at the beginning of verse 8 of our text appears to be connected with the vengeance Christ takes on the wicked, it really should not be read that way. Rather, we should read it in connection with verse 7. The Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Christ and his angels come in flaming fire. This is reference, you understand, to the burning of the universe. God will destroy not just the earth, but the universe at the time of Christ's coming, and he'll destroy it with fire and brimstone. Amidst that fire, Christ shall be revealed in all his power. Every creature shall know that Christ, in his power, has sent this fire to purge the world of its sin and of sinful man who has corrupted this universe. Christ shall heap fire upon those who have troubled the saints and who have rejected God. They will be destroyed in the fire of God's wrath, both temporally and eternally. That leads us to the point that Paul now makes in verse, verses 8, 9, and 10 of our text. That is, the twofold purpose of God in the coming of Christ. That double purpose is to glorify himself in the salvation of his saints, and to do so as well in the destruction of the wicked. Both of these will take place when Christ returns. This passage does not speak of several different returns of Christ by which he accomplishes this. It speaks of Christ's coming as one last final coming, during which Christ will glorify himself and his saints and punish the wicked. That's clear enough from the word of God before us today. The positive purpose in Christ's coming, according to verse 10, is to be glorified in his saints and admired in all them that believe. Christ comes to glorify himself in his saints or among his saints. On the last day of Christ's return, he will call his saints to his side. They will surround him as he glorifies himself. He will send forth his angels throughout this world to gather to him in the air all of his saints, and then these will be gathered together with Christ and the saints. Christ will also have raised from the dead. All will be gathered round about him as he gloriously takes him with them with him to heaven, that one grand, beautiful bride of Christ adorned for her bridegroom. Beautiful. Christ, the bridegroom, decked in honor and power and praise, together with those whom he has cleansed in his blood, the saints, those whom he has sanctified and perfected, those whom he has set apart for himself. Those saints will shine in the beauty of the salvation Christ has earned for them, and that one, as that one body of Christ is taken to the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will be glorified in them. That glory will come to him by way of the saints' admiration of Christ. God's saints, after all, are believers. Those saints, those believers in the day that Christ is revealed at the end of time, will admire their Savior. When their eyes shall behold their Lord face to face, they will marvel together at his glory. 
They will bend before him and worship and humbly admire him for his gracious work of salvation, a salvation begun in their hearts and now brought to its perfect end through Christ's second coming. That's the purpose of Christ's coming, first of all. But then there is the flip side to all of this, too. Not all men are God's saints. Not all men do believe on Jesus Christ. There are those, to use the words of Paul in our text, verse 8, that do not know God, neither obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God speaks of them here. Those who have faith are those who know God in Jesus Christ, but there is no work of saving faith in an unbeliever. And for that reason, such men reject the testimony of the Scripture. They hear the gospel proclaimed to them, and they turn their backs on Christ and salvation. Those who know not God are offended when they hear about their sin and their need for salvation in Christ, or, or they simply do not care when they are told of it. They see no need at all for the crucified Christ. They despise the Christ of the Scriptures and refuse to heed the call of the Gospel to repent and believe. These were exactly the ones who were troubling God's people in Thessalonica. The wicked of this earth always trouble God's saints, if not with threats and mockings, then with temptation. And for their unbelief and disobedience, God will recompense tribulation to them. And the day Christ returns, he personally will take vengeance on our enemies. When our enemies hurt us and despitefully use us, we need to bear it patiently. Christ comes again and he carries his reward with him, and that reward for the wicked is punishment. Christ will take vengeance on the enemies of his church, who are his enemies too. Christ comes to avenge those who were persecuted for his sake. That will happen when he punishes the wicked and disobedient with everlasting destruction. Destruction. Christ will punish the wicked by alienating them totally from the light of his countenance. They will be cast out into darkness, far from the presence of the light and favor of God. That is what we learn in verse 9. Paul writes, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power? Punishment of the wicked will be destruction away from the presence of the Lord and his blessed kingdom of joy and peace. They will be destroyed by being cast out of the blessed glory that is found at the right hand of power. All joy, peace, security, comfort, and so on, will be stripped from them. And they will be destroyed in an everlasting realm of bitterness, depression, sorrow, and pain. They will languish in torment unto all eternity. Forevermore they will be cast away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Frightening, is it not? According to this word of God before us today, that is the twofold purpose of God and the coming of Christ at the end of time. In that day the wicked shall perish, but God's saints will share in the glory of their Lord. 
And that shows us what their blessed end will be too. They will be given rest. Paul writes at the outset of verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us. Beloved believer and saint, are you troubled? I know that the trouble referred to here in this passage is that caused by persecution, but there are other troubles we confront too, some of them in a roundabout way due to the wicked around us. Are you troubled? Perplexed, persecuted, cast down. Are there sorrows you are called upon to bear? Then know this. Christ is coming. That is our hope in a new year. And we need not doubt that Christ comes. His coming is a certainty. Everything we have been taught in this word of God before us today shall come to pass. The end of it all is rest. Blessed, wonderful rest. Ah, that sounds so good, doesn't it? To rest. When we are tired from a long day of toilsome labor, rest sounds like the best thing in the world. When we are surrounded by the toils and burdens of this life, we are weary from the labor found in our struggle against sin. When we are troubled with persecution, then the rest of eternal glory, oh, it sounds good. But Paul says, come rest with us. We will rest together. That rest will be ours when we reach glory, because there, there will be no more sin and no more pain. We will be at perfect peace with God. And we will work the works of the Lord unto all eternity. But then, that rest is not ours only in the future. That rest is ours right now. Paul tells the Thessalonian believers to rest right now. And we do. No matter what the troubles of this life may be, we leave them at the foot of the cross. And we rest there. What blessed peace dwells in our hearts at the cross of Jesus Christ, and what glories await you and me when he returns. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we look for in this new year the return of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, and all of our hopes and all of our dreams will be fulfilled when we reach heavenly glory as a state of perfection where we will dwell with Thee and with Thy Son forever. And Father, when we experience troubles and even persecutions in this life, we pray that Thou wilt continue to watch over us and to strengthen us and give unto us that eternal hope. Those who are Thy enemies will be destroyed. And Thy saints, we who believe on Thee and on Jesus Christ, will indeed receive rest unto our souls. May we patiently wait on our Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.